from the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. And this is Mark. And Perry didn't say anything funny that time. I didn't say anything. It's It's been a long morning. <laughs> he didn't try an intro in a different no, language. No, no, no. I just don't have anything. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> we're going to, this show's going to be, this show's going to make up for the lack of a spicy introduction because we're going outside the tiny house box talking with someone oh, no. who is very, very interesting. Um, and I'm saying very, very interesting because we have not spoken to this person, so we don't know anything really about her. Um, but I'm sure she's going to be interesting. But her, in the meantime, her website is well. Her website's pretty awesome. Fantastic. It kind of it kind of throws back to that 1970s era um, black exploitation situation with a little bit of uh, modern um, Tiatwaki, which you guys may not know. What are you saying? I bet I bet not. our guest knows what Tiatwaki is. Sharon, do you know do you know what Tiatwaki is, Sharon? I. Do in a text of um uh, yeah I do <laughs> of course she does because <laughs> she's a prepper. That's the term that I don't use a lot because I have to remember too many of those letters. Okay, T is the uh, yeah. So I just go with the shit hits the fan. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Tiatwake is the end of the world as we know it, and it's yeah. a, a common acronym used among preppers and survivalists and rem fans and rem fans exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so welcome to the show uh sharon sharon ross's claim to fame is her website and i may get this wrong afrovivalist correct afrovivalist okay. and it's it's pretty obvious that by the name of the website um, Sharon is an African American who is into the prepper movement. Yes. Yes. And I she, am. and the reason why we're having her on the show today is because uh, the Tiny House podcast is more than just about tiny house pot, is more than t- about tiny houses. It's also about unconventional ways of living and interacting with our environment, living simply, uh, living in unconventional ways and um, intentionally. Intentionally, yes, and sustainably. And this uh, Sharon story certainly fits the bill, right, Mark? Absolutely. Um, can you can you talk to the listeners a little bit about how you and your family moved to Oregon? Because in many ways, that's its own tiny house story. Well, I started, we moved from Houston, then to California, and then landed in the little town of um, Sam's Valley, Oregon, which is down in southern Oregon. And we were the black family to visit and stay. <laughs> we, um, we landed on 26 acres that literally had a one-room shack, and there was four of us and a dog. So um, our family pretty much homesteaded that land from a one-room shack to a three-bedroom, two-bath house on 26 acres with chickens, cows, rabbits, you name it, we did it. Wow. Um we had 40 acres surrounding us, and we uh, pretty much had a, a life of, you know, of the homestead, just living on the farm. What did your parents do? 
My father is a U.S. Marine. Oorah! My mom, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. And my mother worked for the um, uh, U.S. Forestry Service. Wow. So did they? Did you move? Did your family move? What was the name of that little town again? Sam something. Sam's Valley. Sam's Valley. Did you move there after he retired from the Corps? No, my dad was still in the Corps. Hmm. He was working for the Car- Corps. Army Corps of Engineers and ended up getting a job down there, and that's how we ended up there. And we stayed there through, I, let's see, I was six years old, first grade, all the way through high school. So I was the first African-American to go through all the all the community schools as, you know, as first black. Um, so that's how we ended up there, is through the job and and after I talked to my dad, after I got a little bit older to understand why in the heck do we end up way out here. <laughs> what was his um, answer to that question? Other than, was it just the job, really? Um, it, well, I think it was more than more than the job. I think my dad was just looking to get away and have a safe place for his, for his, his children. Mm. Um, because we left Houston and then then we were in California, and, and so I'm not sure, you know, it, I think it was more than just a job. I think he wanted the sense of security and to be able to get out and, and be on a farm and raise his own food and do whatever he wants to do instead of being in the city. What era was this? Was it difficult in Houston? Um, well, it was, I was like five, when four or five when we first left Houston, so I don't remember it myself. Okay. But um, I think my dad just got to a point on, you know what, it's just time to bounce. We need to go somewhere else, try something new. And he started putting out applications, and we ended up over here on the Pacific Northwest, which was an awesome choice. I thank him every chance that I get when when he was alive with us that he, you know, put us in this predicament that we're in now. (laughs) What What was it that was awesome to you? Well, even though I was the first African-American to go through the junior year in high schools, you know what? I reverse prejudice in 300, you know, brains, eyes, you know, at the school because I was one of 300 and something. And um, I reversed that. I came, went to my 10-year class reunion, and that group of white people um, – we're now in interracial relationships over half of my class. What? Yeah, was in interracial relationships. Wow. Yeah, or married and had children or whatever. Yeah. Did they live so, in the, Did they live in the same region or did they move? Some, some of them moved and some of them are still there. That's incredible mm-hmm. to me. They had to kind yeah. of move because it was slim pickings. <laughs> exactly. All white people. <laughs> <laughs> they had to move because you know, it, you know, yeah. It was very slim pickings. <laughs> You know, for me, for me to even, you know, um, relate to other African Americans outside of my family, I had to either go to Eugene or come up here to Portland. Eugene is not much. I mean, of a hotbed. Well, of, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, at least there's a school there, so there's the school. Uh, that's, you know, oh, oh, yeah, you know, where I went to hang out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, did the at your reunion did your did your classmates like attribute to you the fact that they were open to of marrying someone not their race actually they um had a question for me and that was um since i was they acknowledged you know you were everything 
but what our grandparents and our parents were telling us. Yes. They were telling us that African-American people are bad people, but then we'd come to school and we'd see something totally different. And their question to me was, if I were to do it again, would I? And I said yes. And the whole room just went, <gasps> and I was like, what? And they didn't expect that. They they thought I'd say, hell no, I am not. would never do that crap again. Mm-hmm. But I would because of the fact that, you know, like I said before, it reversed, I reversed the prejudice in mm. people's, in people's minds. Wow. Did you, you know, they, go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, sorry. Did you have the, the, what would want, what one would expect to be the kind of treatment in a small Southern Oregon town when you went down there? You know, um, I, I grew up beating up boys. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I grew up beating up boys because, you know, they were the first one to have the N-word out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my dad being the Marine and me being his son, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I learned how to do all the boyish things, mm-hmm. you know. So he was like, I'll be damned if, mm-hmm. you know, you're going to get raped or whatever it may be that these people may think. But you're going to have to, you know buck it up, be a man that you're not, but you're going to be it anyway, and I'm going to teach you how to fight, and he Hmm. taught me how to handle knives and, you know, guns and all of that. So when things did happen in my school, Mm -hmm. I would squash it, and it was known after a while that, you you know, don't mess with her. Don't (laughs) fuck with her, because (laughs) she will mess you up. Wow, Sharon, that's freaking awesome. That's fantastic. (laughs) What a story. I contribute my badassness Uh to my father. Yeah, I got it. Wow. (laughs) So, okay, so... um. So that makes it makes total sense then that so you have the seeds were planted. Yeah, right seeds, there. yeah, right. To, for, yeah. for doing what yeah. you did. So, so when you when you when you let's say you graduated from school down there, what happened next, and and how did you matriculate into this um, prepper mode? So after high school, I went to Houston because I never wasn't raised. I am one of seven, so and I'm the second to the youngest. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. my mother. Um, abandoned five of her children and just raised the last two. Oh, interesting. And fortunately mm-hmm. for me, I kept in, I, as I got older, I kept in touch with my other siblings. Mm-hmm. And so when I graduated from high school, that's where I went. I went and spent two years out of high school mm-hmm. um, with my family down there to get to know them. Um, the, the man who raised me was my stepfather. So also, when I went back to Houston, I was able to, um, as an adult, meet my biological father. Interesting. And it, that was just crazy in so, itself right there. All so, of that, you know, just, it was family overload. Yeah. So, Sharon, the, now I have to ask you, was your, so the, the person who moved you to Oregon was your stepfather? Right. Okay. And Walter his, Lott Walter. was my stepfather. And is he, is he a, a white person? No. African-American. Wow. And obviously, uh, um, I'm presuming that your biological father is African-American, too. Correct. Wow. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Did did your... Mm -hmm. Wow. Interesting. So your dad, your stepfather, had married your mom? Correct. But she did not move with him to Southern Oregon? Yes, she moved. He uprooted... My stepfather uprooted myself, my little sister, and my mother. Very interesting. Hmm. Okay, so you went... So you went back to Houston and you met your family, and then what happened? 
And then after two years, um, I came back home because Houston was a major culture shock of, of colored people for me. <laughs> yeah, <I bet>. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, there's more colored people here than trees. What's the problem? <laughs> okay, where's the green trees at? Where's the forest? <laughs> so I realized that I was not a city girl, that mm-hmm. I needed to go back. Um, to the woods and go back to where I was raised. And so I came back um, to Oregon and I ended up just coming to Portland, landed in Portland and um, ended up staying, enrolled in school at court reporting school from there. And then that prelude into a legal secretary position and then that's all she wrote from there as a job. And um, I've always been this survivalist. I've always been this outdoor girl and it's always been eating me up inside because of the fact that um, that um, I lost my train of thought. My phone rang. Um, <laughs> it's been eating me up inside, you know, as I've been getting older because I hadn't been out. And after my father, my stepfather died, um, I stopped going to the range, to the archery range and to the firing range, firearms and, you know, stopped going hunting and stuff when he passed away. And I missed that. So back 10 years, 12 years ago, 15 years ago after Katrina, um, when Katrina hit, that's when it. I got my aha. Okay, I'm this. I need to do this because I'm looking at these people who are in this disaster who had time to prepare but didn't. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I mean they had what two weeks for notice that the hurricane was going to come and still didn't get water and food and things that they needed. So that's the the other point in my life where I said, you know what, I need to prepare. I just need to do this. And then that's where Afrovivalist comes in. I started um, uh, going out and hoarding food. My friends called me a food hoarder. <laughs> but now, I'm, now I know what it's called. It's called being a prepper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now I put that labels on myself. But um, I also went out and um, started buying up property in eastern Washington. I started out with 20, and by the end of the year, I will have 140 acres. Oh, my God. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and from there, I um, am going to build this crazy home called an Earthship. Mm-hmm. And an Earthship is can be a tiny home. I mean, they can be as small as you want them to or as big as you want them to. And what they are is they're, they're um, off-grid sustainable homes. So mm-hmm. they collect their own water. They uh, produce their own energy. Um, they have a greenhouse, so you can have your own garden within your home, tropical fruits, you name it. I mean, it's an awesome home. We're, we have a trek every year. Um, and we go to New Mexico to the greater oh, yeah. world c- yeah, um, yeah. community, mm-hmm. and we go and tour and rent Earthships for a weekend and bring in new people from around the country. I mean, this is starting. To, this is our third year this year, and I think we're going to have about thirty people showing up, strangers, complete strangers, who are interested in the Earthship mm-hmm. and building an Earthship. How do you? How how do you? Who's we? You said you have a trek every. Are you married or are you talking about friends? 
So I'm I'm talking about friends. Megan, I'll get back to you. Sorry. I'm talking about friends. Um, friends are um, from Seattle. So uh-huh. they have the Seattle, um, no, it's called Earthship Seattle okay. um, Facebook and Meetup group. And that's mm-hmm. how I met them was through the Meetup group. And from there, um, lat- the first year that I went, there was 25 of us, if I recall. Loved it. It was a kumbaya moment. It was spiritual. It was, mm-hmm. you know, it was just so much damn fun. Mm-hmm. And so we decided to do it every year. Mm-hmm. So that's the we in okay. in this Earthship. Okay. And then I um, established Earthship Oregon um, for the Facebook page um, to put out information for people here in Oregon also. Okay. So I will be starting to build my Earthship this spring, this summer. Wow. Actually. Very yeah. cool. So yeah. I want to circle back to the conversation that you made about um, Hurricane Katrina and the people mm-hmm. and the people prepping or not lack of preparation. What do you think that right. that what do you think that that says um, sociologically sort of about where we are? Are do people not prepare for national disasters because because they assume that the government or someone else will take care of them? Do they not do it um, because of the fact that they don't have, they don't know how, um, or maybe they just don't have the money or resources? Why, why do you think that that, that's almost an obvious, like, wow, they had two weeks notice and they didn't do anything. Why do you think that's true? Unfortunately, I think a lot of us think that our government's going to take care of us. And that's so far from the, from the truth. (laughs) Our government, unfortunately, is in it for themselves and it is our government. Our government is no longer for we the people, and I think we the people are starting to see that, you know. Um, so yeah, so people out there, they're oh, the government will take care of us, and that's why a lot of people don't prepare. And you also have the people who just don't believe that you know something major is going to happen, and if and if it does happen, God's going to take care of them. Well, that's good and all, but God also says to prepare. You know, so you and then you also have people who are just like, yeah, whatever, I'll just do it when I when the disaster happens or, you know, or whatever, you know. So you've got an array of different reasons why people don't prepare. But the main reason is it's they think the government will take care of them. And that would be called FEMA. And (laughs) my other word for FEMA would be the new concentration camp. Wow. Which is what <laughs> Katrina uh, produced, mm-hmm. actually. Moldy, mm-hmm. moldy camps. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I mean, those people have still yet to, to really, you know, get back on a regular basis of living their life. Mm-hmm. They were, they were, you know, just, <clears throat> it's a sad story for some, some people. Hmm. You know, the properties were taken from them, and, you know, I can go on and on about it, but, you know, mm. that'll take too much time. So, um, yeah, to answer your question, you know, a lot of people think that, you know, their government mm. is going to take care of them. And I try to tell them, no, don't, don't, don't think that way. Prepare for yourself. And, you know, and I also get the people that say, well, if shit hits the fan, I'll just come to your house. And I'm like, because <laughs> <laughs> two things will happen. One, no one will answer the door because my house will be, you know, boarded up. 
And um, two, if I do answer the door, it will be with a shotgun. And, you know, either you got two choices to um, leave or to go. You know, <laughs> you can you can you can go on your own will, and or you I can leave at my I will. <laughs> I recently uh, gave a speech at a tiny house workshop and sort of um, talked about tiny housers as anti-establishmentarianists. Um, I think that comment isn't necessarily anti-government, but it really has to do again with the intentionality of taking care of ourselves. Uh, not living a a life that everybody else expects us to, but um, and and in that regard, I think that's a lot of what you have in common with the tiny house uh, people. We we tend not to uh, color in the lines. We tend to question authority. So that's definitely where we have in common. But um, I would definitely say you're much more of an anti-establishmentarianist than most tiny housers. Where where uh what was your aha moment um, after Katrina? What after you bought your first, uh, shall we say, pile of hoarded food? Uh, what is what did your family and friends and and other people outside of that movement think and say? In the beginning, they thought I was weird. They thought I was crazy. I was paranoid. I've I've lost friends. I've had one girlfriend that I've known for twelve years. And she was like, I don't want to hear that bullshit anymore. That's nonsense. And, you know, I'm just not going to deal with you with that. I, whenever I'm around, I don't want to hear you talk about it ever. And I said, well, you know what? Not a problem. You won't hear from me again because I don't need a friend like you. If you can't be understanding to me as a friend because I'm trying to care for me and my family, then bye-bye. <laughs> and uh, we, we, we're no longer friends because of it. Unfortunately, it's interesting. And, um, huh? Sorry, sorry. I, I, you, you just say so much value. We just want to shut up and let you run the show here. Mm-mm. But I do have another <laughs> question for you. So I, I have to come full disclosure. Disclosure, and we talked about this amongst our, the co-host, the co-host here um, about my background. So um, I was in the Marines for nine years, and when I came out, I started doing the same thing that you're, you're doing. And this was going on probably twenty years ago. And I was just mm-hmm. telling my co-host that I just threw away my very large stash of old food that had expired. And I had these MREs that are still good that I'm probably going to sell. And Or if you want them, you can have them. I also have these <laughs> um, survival bricks, these little food bricks that you can buy from um, some emergency place. The, the long story short is that you know, after 20 years of prepping, including being a firearms expert and all that, I just recently sold all my guns. It's like I thought, wow, this is... Yeah, she's saying, "Wow, right. that wow is not a wow of surprise. It's more like condemnation." You're screwed. I think, yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> so it's it's like for for me, I was like, um, it just seems it it feels to me that that's an overreach. How's that? Like going? So it's one thing. So I'm not judging you, Sharon. I'm I'm sharing this f- for a couple of reasons. One is to offer another perspective that the listeners might be having, and then the other is mm-hmm. to stimulate you to obviously respond in a neat, neat, cool way that would make the show really cool. <laughs> um, but um, the 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 thought of preparing for a disaster is great. Um, everyone should be doing that. I totally believe in that. And then I think about the movie The Road. Have you seen The Road? I have not, and so many people have told me to watch it. Oh, so you should it's really, on my movie yeah, list to watch. Yeah. So the, the in in my estimation, a disaster scenario where you're going to need guns is not going to be a disaster scenario you're going to want to survive, because it's going to be 
if if it gets to that point, it's going to be so bad. And and mm-hmm. the the road, um, I don't think the road went over the top in terms of of characterizing it. I think it was one of the most accurate portrayals of what Tiatwaki or the shit hits the fan is going to actually look like for people. And so when I when I watched that movie, I walked away from that situation thinking, you know, it's just. First of all, I thought it's never going to happen. Uh, and then secondly, I thought if it does happen, I'm going to do what many of the people at the beginning of that movie did, which is find a way to check out because it's just not going to be worth living. Well, I don't think that way. Okay, obviously. You know, I, 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 have a, I have a bug out spot to go to. So if I see that things are starting to get bad in the city, I'm out of here. Well, so. okay. So, yeah, watch that movie because it's not this doesn't just happen in the city. It happens in the country. There's a there's actually a mm. scene where this where the two character, the two main characters um, come upon this guy's house who did prep and he had a bug out location and they come to his bug out location and he's not there because he got killed. And so he never had the mm-hmm. opportunity to use his bug out preparedness and the main characters oh, wow. benefited from him not being there uh, by using yeah. his place. Basically. Well, I will watch that. That sounds interesting. It's very interesting. Sounds interesting. Yeah. There's another well, movie my, from um, the, My bug out spot, my... Um, uh, out on the in eastern Washington, I live in a in an off grid community, and we're all like minded people. And every once in a while, you know, I'll go up there, and if they don't recognize my car or you know the people coming up the road, you get stopped with rifles in their hands, saying, "What are you up here for? Who are you coming to see?" You know, all of that. So those people up there are like so serious about you know their privacy and people coming up on them on that private road. I'm actually familiar with that community. I don't know of, I don't know the people there, but I heard about it. I heard those people, um, and I, I'm saying this with praise, that they actually play games where they practice how long it will take them to bug out from Portland to get to that location. Yes, mm. and that's that's what we did last year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have my family members um, and then um, chosen friends that um, will be welcome to the um, compound if crap does hit the fan. And we do scenarios from Portland. I set it out. I send them an email or text message and giving them a, a survival scenario, and they have to pack accordingly. And then they meet up on the property, and then we go through what's in the vehicles and say, okay, this was great, but this is, yeah, you don't need that. You don't need your pumps out on the forest, you know, <laughs> things like that. Damn. <laughs> you would kick me out before I even got there. <laughs> she just give you a lesson, a corrective lesson. <laughs> <laughs> Rhinestone yeah, boots, not so much. We'd kind of kick you out of there. We'd, we'd, force you to put, we'd force to put, you know, hiking boots on you, Michelle. <laughs> as long as Size boots, eight and a half. <laughs> Pink soles mm-hmm. preferred. Thank you. <laughs> So yeah, so it's um it's been a very interesting life so far now that I've put myself out there um because now people don't think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Now that they're starting to see more things on the news and you know stores are start starting to sell emergency kits and they're seeing, you know, these things about, you know, uh emergencies everywhere now. Now that they're like, hmm, she wasn't crazy after all. Mm-hmm. I was just ahead of my time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I seen him at Walmart. 
seen what at yeah. Walmart? The emergency oh, the kits. Yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. emergency yeah. kits. They're like everybody. Yeah, they have them at Walmart and Winco mm-hmm. and Costco. you know. Yeah, Costco. Rel- I think she's right though. It's a relatively new thing. No, it's not new. Really? Oh, you mean that no. Walmart? That Walmart has is the preparation been, stuff. I mean, it's a it's a big section now. I think that I've never noticed right. before. Yeah, but is it a li- right. is there it's a line? It's relatively new in the stores, right. but when it comes to people who have been prepping like me, we've been around for a long time. Yeah. Oh long yeah, time. yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So, so do you, do you think that there's a line between? Because it makes sense, especially after that Cascadia article came out about the, the induction zone, zone. subjection yeah. induction zone. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but but so kind of prepping for natural disasters like that is kind of one thing. Mm-hmm. But is there a line you think that's not crossed but that becomes where other people that's where they just can't see it then people can't see things like an emp which means you know electromagnetic pulse emp is a electromagnetic pulse and we can experience an emp two ways one from the sun when we have sunbursts and if that sunburst reaches our atmosphere it would fry our um electrical um grid Everything that's got, you know, um, digital components in would fry. And the other way that it can happen is our enemies know that um, one way that they can just bring us down to a level of non-existence pretty much, and that is to set a nuclear bomb above our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And once that happens, it reacts the same way as a solar flare. Everything is burned out. Our grid's down. Everything, communication gone. Uh, Our cars will stop in their tracks. I mean, you name it. And the scary thing about the EMP is the fact that we don't have enough supplies to even rebuild our infrastructure our electrical infrastructure. Yeah. Guess where we get? Guess who builds our materials that we need for that? One guess. Guess China. China. Mm-hmm. And it would take two years for us to get transformers from China. Yeah. So just knowing that, me knowing that, yeah, you know, an earthquake, we can bounce back a little bit quicker from an earthquake, but with the EMP. We can't bounce back. Yeah. You know, we it will set us back into the 19th century, 1900s. So that's the other reason why I prepare, is because our enemy knows that we have a very, very bad, old um, electrical grid. Yeah, we do. And, and, yeah, we do. And I think there's some crossover there with the, the tiny house movement from who maybe mm-hmm. gets to the same place but from a different angle which is out on the land living independently off grid where if something like that were to happen they may not see that much of a change in lifestyle i would think right yeah Yeah. right they would not be affected by it because they're already living off grid unfortunately laws are changing where we can't do that I've seen they're that, Sharon. To, yeah, they're, they're trying to say that we can't, we can't have like, for instance, in where my property is, um, you can't have a tiny home. You know, uh, you have to be able to live in it twenty four seven. Oh wow! But it can't be like a vacation tiny home. I mean, when I called about it, they said you can't do it. 
you were you were somewhat cryptic, so I, apo- I apologize for asking, and it's okay if you don't answer. But can you say where is this in Bend or in the place in Washington? Uh, Eastern Washington. Interesting, mm-hmm. really. And then also, you know, there a lot of states are say, are are passing laws where you cannot even have rain catchment and catch water. I've seen off your that. Own roof. I've, I've seen that in Florida. Um, yeah, and and part of Florida, this. Florida. I, yeah. I think the municipalities are kind of freaking out with this. With There are many of these kind of movements happening where people are wanting to live sustainably and individually. And they're, they're kind of freak. The municipalities are freaking out a bit about the possibility that this will mushroom. And as a result, you'll see this death spiral of municipalities because as people do this, they're no longer dependent on services. The local, so they're not yep. paying taxes. And next thing you know, they're, you're financially no. strangling them. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, the people who are really going to panic are the rich because their pocketbooks will no longer be cushioned by us, you know, and that's the reason, you know, these major corporations, we can't allow them to do that because if we allow them to do that, we might go bankrupt. Yeah. We might not have any money in our pockets. Mm-hmm. Well, wah, boo-hoo. <laughs> so Let should... us do what we want to do. Yeah. And it, it's... It's more. It's getting more and more where we're being dictated what we can and cannot do on our own property. Yeah, and uh, it's really sad. especially the can't do part. Right. Exactly. Yeah. The can't do is ridiculous yeah. because you know people who want to be free of the city buy property out in the country so mm-hmm. they can be free. Mm-hmm. Well, if we can't, you know, have our own rain water catchment, then how are we supposed to grow food mm-hmm. and feed our animals and mm-hmm. everything? Because out there where I am, we don't have the city municipal stuff out there. Right. We've got electricity, but we don't have we don't have you know city water or anything mm-hmm. like that. We would have to dig the well, and wells out there are from twenty to twenty five dollars a foot. Yeah, are you still a court reporter? No, not anymore. What do you do? I am, I work for the state of Oregon. I am the admin administrative specialist for the state of Oregon. Oh, okay, okay, cool. So I work. I am working with the radiological emergency response team. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, in the radiation department. Yeah. Hmm. So it's funny. Here I am, an African African American woman, and I run the tanning facilities. The department. tanning <laughs> facility is that what they're they that that's what they oversee. That's what I'm overseeing in the in the department. Oh my gosh! So I oversee all the tanning beds in Oregon. Oh my gosh! Sharon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's just one thing after another. Yeah, I get yeah, a kick yeah. out of that. I, I get a kick out of that because yeah. when I go to classes and and we have to do these seminars, people will look at me and be like. What? <laughs> if if I could get the chance, I would so love. To redesign your business card, oh, oh my God, it'd be a blast! <laughs> <laughs> People are like, "You what? Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you actually tan?" And I'm like, "No, <laughs> I just work there." <laughs> Hilarious. Pretty funny. It's pretty funny seeing people's reactions when I have to go to seminars and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Sharon, it's been lovely having you on the show. We could have talked to you for a whole oh, other hour. Absolutely. Oh, and next time we have to do face to face, we'll try to find oh, a way yeah. where we can make it happen. We got to get you. Got yeah, you, yes, you. I would love that. Very I would cool. love that. Awesome. awesome. And yeah, if you want to go more in depth on, you know, um, on the Earth ships or yep. the emergency yeah. kits and stuff like that, yeah. that would be great. Absolutely. The Earth ships for sure. Yeah. Well, I am going to. Um, 
next month is our trip to New Mexico. I will be meeting with Mike Reynolds, the architect who created the Earthship, and we'll be filming him. So I'm going to do a documentary on that. So I'll be having some information and probably a showing um, in probably May or June of that trip. Oh, that might be a good time to reconnect with you when you get back. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Sharon, it's been lovely having you on the show. And um, Tiny House listeners, you've had a wonderful departure from our typical theme. Come back and join us next week, and we'll be talking with someone who we don't know at this moment. Because it's not booked yet. Because we're not booked yet. Um, Not booked yet? No, but we're working Mm -hmm. on it. Michelle's doing it. Yeah, Yeah, we're working on it. We're we're catching up. So if I can do a plug real quick, if anyone's interested, please go to afrovivalist.com for more information. And stay tuned on what I am doing. I will be doing a couple of things um, that um, uh, will be interesting. And one is a possible uh, reality show that I can't say the name of yet. But, yeah. Wow. Might be on a reality show here soon. Very cool. Yes. Well, there you go, Tiny House listeners. You got a sneak preview. Sneak peek. And if anyone wants to help build an Earthship, please contact me. Awesome. We have a couple builds in eastern Washington that will be taking place this summer. Cool. Okay, listeners, go to it. Do we want to do a yeah. review or? Um, let me or see. Do I have? Do I have um, we can do a quickie. Okay. Uh, before we do that, so oh, so listeners, uh, once again, we're randomly reading reviews that people put on our uh, iTunes page. So if you're interested in submitting a review and having it read on the air, you've got to first submit the review. And here is one read by Mark. Um, Less is more, says Rhodes Perry. Want to learn about the tiny house movement? Let Mark Grimes and company deliver the facts with a good dose of humor and Portland charm. (laughs) You'll walk away inspired and maybe motivated to live a more full life with less stuff. That's a good one. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, there you have it. A randomly read review. All right. See you next week. See you, listeners. That was Michelle. That was Michelle. See you, Michelle. (laughs) See you, listeners. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Main. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sitecast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon.